second uh, in our series of studies on the foundations of our faith. And this evening we are looking at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of God. It was A.W. Tozer who said that what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What do you mean by that? Our belief in God or our lack of our belief in God would automatically translate into our actions, our attitudes, and how we view things in the world around us or what we call as the world view. Now, Joseph in the Old Testament, his belief in God affect regular lifestyle. If you notice right at the end in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, he says, Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Equally, when Potiphar's wife wanted to have relationships with him, he ran away from there and says, How can I do this against God? Now, his understanding of who God is affected his moral life. His understanding of who God is affected how he would react to injustices in the world. That's important then, as we look at this study this evening, our understanding of God has to be correct, has to be correct. Now, there are people in this world who say, I don't believe in God. They are known as the atheists. Atheist. Atheism is an open and a positive denial of the existence of God. Now, God tells them about them or describes them in his word as a fool has said in his heart that there is no God. It is like God has created him and this guy says, I don't believe in you. He says, how foolish can that be? That's why the scripture says the fool has said in his heart. Once you understand who God is, that he is your creator, you don't deny him. You want to get to know more about him and the relationship that he wants to share with you. There are three types of atheist. One you can call as the absolute atheist. The absolute atheist. This is the one who denies the absolute existence of God. He says, I've examined all the facts and I've come to this conclusion that God does not exist. Can there be something like an absolute exist? Here is man who is a finite being making an absolute statement that there is no God. It is just not possible, isn't it? And oftentimes even these you know, atheists who say that there is no God, you know, when things go wrong and upset, you know, they may cry out to God. Or sometimes they use the name of God you know, as a curse word. Now, if they didn't believe in God in their heart of hearts, why do they do that? And if in their heart of hearts, they are sure that God does not exist, why spend so much time and energy trying to deny that? Because in the heart of hearts, God has created man with that innate assurance that there is a God. So a person who denies and says God does not exist at all, is actually a liar because he cannot make a statement like that. He can never make an absolute statement that God does not exist because he has not in his finite mind been able to 
understand or comprehend or get all the data together. The second type of atheist is called as a providential atheist. Now, he will say, I believe that there could be a God somewhere way up there. I don't know who he is, and I don't think we can really know him. He doubts the existence. He doesn't deny it totally, but he doubts the existence. Now, he denies this or has this doubt about God or doesn't want to you know, believe in a God because he wants a freedom from any responsibility for his sin. As soon as you recognize that there is a God, then you know you're accountable. If he's your creator, you're accountable to the creator, isn't it? So this is why both the absolute atheist and the providential atheist may also speak about evolution, that God did not create us, we just evolved. Now, if we just evolved, it just happened, there's no creator, then you're not accountable to anybody. But when you recognize that there is a creator, then there is definitely the accountability. So the absolute atheist puts his foot down and says, I am convinced. Uh, the providential atheist, you know, it's like in the middle ground, he says, I don't know for sure, but you know, I don't think we can really know. But the third one is called as the practical atheist. Practical atheists. You know. These are individuals who do not deny the existence of God, okay, but they live as if God did not exist. Now, that's a sad position, isn't it? They do not say that there is no God. They believe definitely strongly that there is a God, okay, but oftentimes they make a God in their own image, you know, and live a life, you know, uh, you know of. Uh, evil, live a life of uh, you know, sinfulness, you know, and live a life as if God does not know or God does not care about that. Now, sad to say, a lot of Christians can come under that category. Because if you ask a person, do you believe in God? They'll say, yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. You know. But how's your lifestyle? You don't live as if you really believe in the God whom you believe. This is why in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. As you do this study, you would not fall under this category. You know, you're not saying I'm an atheist. Yes, I believe in God. But you may come under this category of a practical atheist. They profess to know God but by their deeds, they deny him. So let's move further now and look at some rational proofs of God's existence. If somebody asks you, give me some proof, how do you know that there is a God? Is there any proof that we can give them? Okay. Over the centuries, many Christian thinkers have tried to prove the existence of God from several factors within the world. And this is known as natural theology. And the main proofs are the following. The first one is called as the cosmological. It's called as the cosmological. The Greek word cosmos means an orderly arrangement, an orderly arrangement. Okay. So if there is something that is in order, that means there was somebody who gave that order to this particular thing. Okay. It is like, you know, if you know your room is in a mess, you know, and you know, maybe a day or two later, you come and see, oh, the room has now become you know, tidy. So what will you immediately ask? Who 
made up the room. Who made up the bed? Somebody has done it. So if there was in a, in a no order and there is now order, then immediately as soon as you see an order, you know, you immediately say someone has done it. It just did not come together. The sheets did not naturally fold themselves and the pillows went on a particular place and the clothes went into a particular place naturally. You know, somebody did it. So that's called as the cosmological you know, argument. Every effect has an adequate cause. And when you see the world, you know, it is in total order. So as a result, you know, the world which is in order must have somebody who put it in order which is primarily God, which is primarily God. The second uh, in our proof is called as the teleological, the teleological, okay? And this you know, basically means you know, there is a, a designer, not just somebody, you know, but there is someone who's actually designed it. So on one side, you have the order, and on the other hand, you also have the intricacies in that order okay there's someone who has taken pains you know to design things in the world pale a philosopher used the illustration of a man finding a watch in the woods if you found a watch and then found it also kept good time you are forced to conclude that it had a designer how much more when you look at the universe and all its infinite complexity you have to come to the conclusion that there was a master designer behind the whole of creation. The earth itself is an evidence of design, isn't it? If it were much smaller, an atmosphere would be impossible. If it was much larger, the atmosphere will contain free hydrogen. Its distance from the sun is exact, correct. Even a small change would make it either too hot or too cold. Our moon, probably responsible for the continents and the ocean basins, is unique in our solar system and seems to have originated in a way quite different from the other relatively much smaller moons. And the tilt of the Earth's axis ensures the seasons and so on and so forth. You just have to study the creation and then you can definitely say, that is definitely a designer. You can look at the different birds, you can look at the different flowers, you can look at the different insects, you know, and you see so much of a design in it. And that definitely says that there was an architect who designed it in a show. So now the world shows evidence of design and the world has a designer, an intelligent architect who is definitely God. The third proof is called as the ontological proof. It basically means the idea of a supreme being, the idea of a supreme being. Every man who is born into this world recognizes somehow that there is a God up there. Now, he may sometimes you know, say the man up there, he may say the force up there, you know, but he recognizes in his heart of hearts there is a supreme being who is outside of himself, you know, who is perfect, independent and infinite. Where did come from if there was no such being? This is called as the ontological in a proof. In the heart of hearts, man knows. So this is why religion came into being, isn't it? Religion is primarily 
man's search for God. He recognizes there is a God and he begins to do different, different things. He may say, okay, if you do this, 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 then you can reach up to God. So man created image, so, you know, created religion. And even today, a lot of religions are continue to be created. You know, new religions are continuously coming into the market apart from the old standard ones. Why? Because man is recognizing that there is a God and I have to do something to please him. So the consciousness of a supreme being and your you know, desire to get into a relationship or please the supreme being, you know, that thought which is inside is called as the ontological argument. Then you have the next one, which is the moral argument, the moral argument. The moral argument basically says that in the heart of hearts, every man basically recognizes that there is good, there is evil. Okay, there is good, there is evil. The existence of these objective moral values implies the existence of a transcended, a transcendent God of values. God is the one who has put this moral desire into our hearts. The fact that God is holy, man recognizes himself as unholy. And you don't have to teach a person to do wrong. You do it and the child himself recognizes that it is wrong. As you grow older, if you notice, you don't have to tell somebody that killing is wrong or murder is wrong or rape is wrong. They know it is wrong, but they still do it. The fact that they know it is wrong, you know, shows that there is this you know, identity inside of them. But definitely, if a person has uh, uh, killed his conscience over a period of time, he can you know, sort of say to himself that wrong is right, wrong is right, wrong is right, and believe in his heart of hearts you know, that wrong is right. That's because he has programmed his thinking. But in the heart of hearts, every individual knows that there is something called morals, you know, something called good, something called evil. And the existence of these objective moral values shows that there is a God. Fifthly, the fifth proof is called as the mental proof, the mental proof. This argues that pure materialism is unable to explain the capacity of the mind, okay? You know, it's unable. There is definitely a, something called materialistic, but there's also something which is different from materialistic, you know, and that's the mental argument. Consider a marble table, for example. Do you think that given a trillion years or infinite time, this table could suddenly or gradually become conscious, aware of its surroundings, aware of its identity? the way you and I are, it is definitely inconceivable, isn't it? And what holds for the table holds for all the other matter in the universe. In other words, when man thinks about it, he recognizes that there is something of the material. There's also something of the mind, the thinking capacity. You know, an object cannot think, man can think. How did that thinking come from, you know, if not? from God who had that input into his life. Now, these are just some basic, you know, proofs for God's existence. Now, this may help you, you know, to share with somebody who says, I don't believe in God, but this could also help you to 
fortify your own belief that a person doesn't really have to come to conclusions because the Bible says God exists, so you have to believe. Yes, the Bible gives us a lot more information about the existence of God and his characteristics, and that is what we will now look at. What does the Bible have to say about God's natural attributes? Yes, there is a God with these proofs. You know, you come to the conclusion, our mind agrees. Yes, I believe that there is a God. Now, which God? Who God? What does he do? You know, what are his attributes? What does the Bible tell us? Number one, the Bible says that God is transcendent. What do you mean by transcendent? He is above all and he is separate from his creation. Now, that's an important understanding from scripture. He is not a part of creation. He is above creation. He is self-existing. Okay? Not only does he have life in himself, but he is also the source of all life. Now, that's the biblical understanding of God. Man thinks that he is in control. God, the biblical God says, no, I'm the one who is above all, separate from creation. He is the high and lofty one. The scripture tells us in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, the high and lofty one who lives forever, whose name is holy or set apart. So he is the one who is, if you were to say, putting it in our understanding, the one who is way up there, far above all. But also the Bible says he's imminent, you know, he is far above all, but he is also near. He is also near. Okay. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, To him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to receive to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart. Yes, he is far above all, but he is also involved. He doesn't stand apart from the world as a mere spectator to what he has made, but he is willing to come down. And that's the beauty of Jesus, isn't it? God did not say, I'm way up there. He came down. The word became flesh. He becomes near to us. So when you're speaking about his nearness, you know, remember he doesn't get you know, mixed up in the world. That's a pantheistic belief. They will say God is so near. I can see God in the tree. I can see God in the rock. I can see God here. There. No, no, that's not when you say he is near. He is near to those who call upon him. He is not someone who is existing in all these things. You know, it is his creation. Okay, That is his creation. He doesn't get immersed with the creation, but he is you know, distinguishable. You know, he's separate from his creation. So you're not a, a part of God. Okay? You know, that's you know, sometimes the non-Christian belief that God is there in you. He is everywhere, he is in you. No, no. It's not a question of we are divine. No, it's an emphasis of he is separate, he is far above all, but he is also, you know, so close to those individuals who are willing to call upon him. And the example definitely is of Jesus himself who came down to reveal himself to us. Thirdly, God is omnipotent. Omnipotent means he is the all-powerful one, all-powerful one. Jeremiah 32 and verse 17 tells us, Our sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is <laughs> too hard for 
you. Nothing is too hard for you. It is impossible. Nothing <coughs> is impossible. Now, there are some people who will you know, take on to this and say, you know, you know, can God lie? No, God cannot lie. You know, does that mean that he is not all-powerful? No, that does not mean that. You know, he is definitely the all-powerful one. Or somebody else may put across you know, this hypothetical argument which says, is it possible for God to make anything too heavy for himself to lift? Is it possible? If it is not possible, then how can he say that he is all-powerful? You know, if he's not able, not possible for him to make something which is too heavy for him to lift, how can he say that he is all-powerful? These are all just sometimes what we call as silly arguments of people to try and disprove. And C.S. Lewis, you know, responding to these arguments, will say, nonsense is still nonsense, whether we are talking about something else or about God. Fourthly, God is omnipresent omnipresent. He is in all places all the time and he is fully present everywhere. He is not like in a spread thin. Okay, It's not like all around the world and a little little bits of himself is there. No, no. When he says he is omnipresent, it means he is present in his entirety, entirety all across the globe. Okay, So, I am speaking here God is omnipresent here. You're in your rooms, you know, God is present there. You know. The hundred percent God, the same God is present everywhere. Psalm 139 verses 8 to 10 says, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The psalmist says, if I go to the north, south, east, west, anywhere around the world, you, know, you are definitely there. That's the omnipresent God. And also, the fifth one, he's also the omniscient God, the God who knows everything. Not just our actions, but even our thoughts. Even our thoughts. Psalm 139 and verse 2 tells us, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts afar off. You perceive my thoughts afar off. John writing about Jesus says in John chapter 2 and verse 25, he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. Even before they said it, he knew what they were thinking. Why was he able to do that? Because he was God. He is the omniscient one, the God who knows everything. Number six, he is eternal, timeless. He never had a beginning and he never will have an end. 3 and verse 27 says, The eternal God is your refuge. The eternal God is your refuge. Oftentimes people have a question, isn't it? Who created God? Who created God? Obviously, nobody can create God because God is eternal. If we say so-and-so created God, then that becomes another senior person or that becomes the eternal one. So when you're thinking about God, he has been there right from the very, very beginning. There was never a time when he did not exist. And God's existence preceded time as we know it. Why? Because he is the one who created time. He is the one who created time. 
Seventhly, the Bible tells us that God is unchangeable. He is unchangeable. He does not change like the shifting shadows. Okay, that's what James mentions in James chapter one and verse seventeen. Okay, he is unchangeable. So when you think about all these characteristics of God, he is the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the omniscient, the eternal, you know, the transcendent, the immanent. All these characters, all these attributes are unchangeable. So as a result, we have a guarantee that this will be continue to be that. That God would not be today, one day, and tomorrow says, no, 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 I'm going to change. No, no, he does not change whatsoever. Now, the next thing is that God is personal. God is personal. This is the beauty of it, that this God who is way up there, this God who is willing to come close to us, the all-powerful, ever-knowing, ever-seeing one, one who is eternal, is able to be personal. Why is he able to be personal? Because he is a person. If God was a force, he cannot have a relationship with us. Now, the Star Wars may say, let the force be with you, you know. That's not a question of God be with you, okay? If you're thinking about God as a force, you and I cannot have relationship with the force. But if God is a person, then we can have a relationship. And that's the biblical understanding of God. For a lot of religions, God is just a force up there, you know. But when the Bible speaks about God being a person, that is why in Genesis 1.26, the Bible tells us that God created us in his own image. He has given us a personality as persons just as much as he has a personality being a person. And his personality is all these attributes that we have spoken about. So God is a personal God. He can speak with us. He can talk with us. He can sit one-on-one -on -one with us you know, because he is God. Because he does not spread himself too thin, because he can be in different places at the same time in his totality, he can sit down to hear your prayer on an individual basis. Listen to what you know, C.S. Lewis writes, you know, can God hear a hundred million prayers at one time? To this question, he says, yes, God has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not deal with us in a, in a mass or in a large quantity. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. For close personal touch that you and I can have with God, that you were the only one whom he has created and that he would want to spend time with you. That is his heart cry. That is his heart cry, that he wants to be personal. This is why number nine will tell us that God is loving. God is loving. Oftentimes for a lot of people, the question is not, you know, whether there is a God. But oftentimes the question is, is God good? Or if God is loving and God is good, why is there so much suffering in this world? No, no, the scripture tells us that God is good, God loving. And we see God's love in the creation of the world. Now, how he created all the way to the climax of Jesus dying on the cross for us. His love takes on this concrete action.
So if a person says, if there is God, if there is a loving God, why is there suffering? You ask yourself, when Jesus came into this world, did he go through suffering? He was God himself, but he went through suffering, isn't it? Why? As an expression of his love for us so that he can redeem us. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 4 says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And 1 John 4.10 tells us, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The person says, okay, I believe he's personal. You're saying he's loving, but I don't see his love. I see so much of suffering in my life. Look at what Jesus suffered for us because he loved us, because he wants to have a relationship with us. And even through the suffering that we go through, if only we are able to see the hand of God, we are drawn much more closer to him. And the familiar verse in John 3.16 would say that God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave. He didn't keep to himself, but he was willing to send Jesus into this world to suffer for us. And why is there suffering? Number 10 tells us that God is holy. God is holy. Holiness is the totality of the perfection of God. Habakkuk 1.3 tells us, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. Your eyes are too pure to look at evil. So on one side, there's the holiness of God. On the other hand, you have the love of God. These are like two sides of the same coin. So if there is sin in the world, holiness comes into operation and it has to be punished. When sin entered into the world, the love of God sent Jesus into the world to die for us. So love and holiness go together. Finally, number 11 says God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Okay. Psalm 135 and verse 6 tells us, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. If he's a boss, if he's a designer, then he has to be sovereign, isn't it? He's in charge. And not only has he created the world, he's the one who keeps it going. He's a sustainer. He did not create and take his hands off and say, okay, let me see how they do. He has not started his recreation work in us and taken his hand off and say, okay, let me see how they will finish the, you know, the Christian race. No, no, he is sovereign. He is the one who is in control in our lives. And as Ephesians 1.11 says, he is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And when we know that this God is the one, it does, not, does definitely give us safety and security. To God, everything happens in one eternal moment. From this vantage point, we view in awe his wisdom and trustworthiness in all that he does. That is why we say God knows the end from the beginning. As the sovereign God, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what he is up to. We do not know what's happening, but we know what God is up to. As we put our trust in him, 
then we find the safety and the security for our daily livings. Let me conclude with some practical applications, the practical applications for this understanding of who God is. Number one, first, the knowledge of the existence of God means that man is put here by design. God is the creator, and you and I are his creatures. Then as his creatures, there is a particular purpose that God has created us uniquely with a special purpose and a meaning. We are not merely the product of time plus chance or some impersonal force. We are each the result of a personal God who created us for himself with meaning and purpose. Now, the more we understand who God is, the more we understand if he is the designer, then my interests are in his heart. He has designed me for something. And I better make sure what that design is, what that purpose is. Ask yourself even this evening, do you have a personal relationship with God to know that he is your designer? Do you know what he is up to in your life? Do you recognize that your life has a design? It's not aimlessness. It's not that just you're born into this world and one day you die and do something in between that. No, no. God has a purpose for each one of our lives. And the more we are conscious that this eternal God loves us and has a plan and purpose and a design for our lives, that causes us to get to know him and his plans in a much better way. That we are not practical atheists just saying we believe and living our own life. But we say we believe, and when we say we believe, we also acknowledge that he has a design and purpose for our lives. Find that design and live for that purpose. Secondly, the knowledge of God means responsibility, means responsibility. The fact that there is a supreme and a perfect being, a divine sovereign who created us for his purposes, means that we are each responsible to him for the way we live, and for what we do with the life that he has given us. The Bible very clearly tells us it is appointed unto man once to die. And then what? In other words, if God has created us and say, look, here, I've created you for this purpose. Okay. And if he never identified that purpose, never knew his plan, never knew his design, we did our own thing saying, I don't bother about God's plan for my life. At the end of our lives, we have to meet with God because that's what the scripture acknowledges. If there's a creator and we are accountable to the creator and when the creator asks us, what did you do with the life that I gave you? Would we be irresponsible creatures and tell God, I did what I wanted to do? No, your understanding of God, your belief about God will make a change in your attitude and your actions and your daily living. That's what it means when you say the knowledge of God means responsibility. So each day that God gives to you, when you get up in the morning, thank God that God has given you another day. There are a lot of people who went to sleep and didn't get up the next morning. You know? But when you, when you get up and God has given you that new day, you ask God, God, I thank you you gave me this day. Now what do you want me to do with this day? You know. That is what responsibility is all about. Not do your own thing at the, and then come at the end of the day and say, Lord, I thank you, you were with me. No, starting of the day, ask God, God, 
you are the one who has given me this day. Help me to be a responsible individual to make use of the time that you have given me in a way that would please you. Thirdly, the knowledge of God's existence means that we have a responsibility to search and seek to know God personally and intimately, to be thankful and to worship Him accordingly. If there is a God, and we have seen all these passages, plus you know, from a general and a understanding, we know that there is a God. Okay, what does that mean? Our responsibility is to seek and know this God personally. If God has created us, our job has to find out about our Creator, isn't it? You know, our job is to identify that. You know? And once we have identified Him, we want to get into a close understanding, close a relationship with Him, to thank Him for what He means to us, and as a result, to worship Him accordingly. But sad to say, most people, even with the conviction that God exists, live like practical atheists, as though God did not exist, or as though He was indifferent to man. And one of the reasons for this is found in two passages of Scripture. First passage, Psalm 50 and verse 21, which says, These things you have done, and I have kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Why people live like the way they do is because they say, Anyway, God has not done anything, isn't it? You know, God is very patient with me. He is very loving. He didn't punish me. So as a result, you know, you say, I can do whatever I want to. But God says over here, I kept silence, but one day there is definitely going to be punishment. So don't take it lightly. Secondly, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 and 12 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. Those who fear God, it will be well with them. Those who think that they can get away with whatever they are doing and living a life as if God does not exist, as if God does not care about them, they can do whatever they want to. The scripture tells us it will be sad for them. So this evening, ask yourself, what is your understanding about God? Understanding that just a force somewhere? Understanding that He is not someone who is way up there, but someone who wants to and enjoys coming into a close relationship with you. One who wants to be closely involved in each of our lives. One who has a plan and a design as his creation for each of us. And as we are willing to allow him to fulfill his plan and purposes in our lives, we will find that our life becomes much more meaningful, not only for us, but also for people around us, because their lives will be blessed as we fulfill God's purpose for our lives. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this evening. 
so many different understandings about who you are. Don't even believe in you, Lord, after they have seen your creation, after knowing in their heart of hearts that there is a creator, still they refuse to accept you and acknowledge you in their lives. But your word tells us so much of your love for us, of your caring for us, of your fact that you are the one who is in control over our lives. You're the one who is willing to sit one-on-one -on -one and have an intimate relationship and fellowship because we are your creation. Even in these days, you would help us to change our understanding of you, not to think that you are someone there waiting to you know, punish us or waiting to hit us or you know, that you don't love us. But Father, we pray that you'd help us from the understanding of who you are from your word even this evening. This would change our mindset about who you are, that we would want to spend time with you, that we would want to build up our relationship with you, that we would want to know your design and plan for our lives, and we would want to fulfill it so that when we finish the plan and the race and the design that you have set out for us in this world and meet you face to face, we can hear from you, your well done, good and faithful servant. Be with us this week, Lord, too, as we make practical changes in our lives as a result of this study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.